We are excited to have Jeffrey Johnson with us today to talk about the sovereignty of God. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, Jeff. Man, I'm glad to be on. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. I know that you're a really busy man wearing a number of different hats. Uh, please feel free to introduce yourself to our audience and also tell us how you come to write your latest book, The Sovereignty of God. Yeah, okay. I I started a church 23 years ago, so I'm a pastor, still pastoring the same church um, in the middle of the state of Arkansas in the south region of America. So, And then I started a publishing company about 12 or 13 years ago. And so I uh, owner and operator of a, a reformed Baptist publishing company. And then about six or seven years ago, we started a seminary, Grace Bible Theological Seminary. And I'm currently the president of the seminary as well. So I got those three titles and hats to wear, along with being a father of four children and a husband of a wonderful, wonderful wife. So I stay quite busy. So how many hours do you sleep per day? <clears throat> it, it depends. Uh, I don't sleep well to begin with. So sometimes I get just a few hours a night. Sometimes um, I have to crash to catch up. And yeah. so I, I need eight hours. I think I think I need eight hours. So yeah. when I get five or six, there's there's a day to pay for it later on in well, the week. You put in the other 16 hours to very good use, Jeff. So congratulations on that. <laughs> so we're here to talk about the sovereignty of God today. And sovereignty is one of those words, isn't it, that Christians can learn to use before really understanding its real full meaning. What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign? Yeah, we mean that God is, in the shortest way of saying it, is he's in con complete, complete control. That he is in control of all things. And um, so that he is, but it includes, the word includes more than just that he's in control. It speaks of his right or his authority and power to be in control. That it is, yes, he's in control, but he has the right and the authority and the power to be in control. So he created all things. All things belong to him. Uh, he's the omnipotent one. He's the omniscient one. And because he is who he is, he cannot not be sovereign. He cannot not be in control. So he's the God of the universe. He knows the, the end before the beginning. And then he works all things out according to his purposes and plans. So it, the sovereignty, you know, we will unpack this as we go, but it includes so much. It's not just a simple theology, a simple definition of he's in control. But if I had to reduce it down, I would say it's God's in complete control of all things. Yeah. And to what level of detail does God's sovereignty flow? Well, I have one line in my new book that everybody that's read it pauses on that line and go, is that true? Is that? And it's it's meant to stimulate thought, but it, it sure certainly has captured um, a lot of attention. Uh, and I said that we have no problem typically we have no problem with God being sovereign over the constellations in the, you know, of the stars, the constellations out of, you know, out of space, let God control that. If he wants to micromanage the particles in outer space, he's God, he can do that. But we don't mind that, but we do have a problem when we think that he's in control of our, our inner thoughts, our, you know, how we contemplate. So if, 
if he's in control of our contemplations, that's where we start to go, wait, that's a little too much authority, too much control, too much power. I'm not comfortable with God um, controlling my thoughts. Maybe he knows them, you know, maybe he, he knows what I'm going to think and he sees my thoughts. That's uncomfortable enough, but is he actually in control of my thoughts? That's where we start to buck up and say, I don't want that to be true. I don't like that to be true. And it, and because of a lot of reasons, maybe that makes me a robot, which it doesn't. Maybe that means that uh, I have no moral responsibility. And so we start having objections. And so I'm saying that he is so much control that he's in control of our thoughts. Yeah. Really which includes helpful. everything we're else. Gonna explore, we're going to explore some of them pushbacks a little bit later on. But before we do yeah. that, some common unbiblical views of God when it comes to his sovereignty. Well, um, a lot of people have this idea that God is sovereign and they have a truncated view of God's sovereignty. They'll use the word, it's in the Bible, so they, they'll use the word sovereignty, God is sovereign. And they'll use it over the big, uh, kind of God's sovereign over major world events. He's sovereign over um, uh, uh, things like who goes to war, natural disasters, uh, tornadoes, hurricanes. They're comfortable with some major overall things that God intervenes here and there, but it's an intervention. But for the most part, he's stepping back and watching. And then when he needs to intervene and readjust the direction of the history of the world, he'll do it, but he doesn't want to do it, but he does it slightly and and he's responsive, like he's counter-reacting, like a chess player uh, that he's the better chess player uh but he's waiting to see what we do before he knows what he's going to do. And that's that's an open theistic view of sovereignty, which completely undermines sovereignty. And then, so that's one position that we need to uh, uh, be aware of and the open theist. And then there's the other one, the modalism. And that's where God is more in control. He's in control of all things, but he's in control because he knows what we're going to do. And he is in, he is. Uh, the master chess player, and he's not just intervening every now and then, he's micromanaging, but in response of what's happening. So he learns, then after he learns, he he intervenes and makes things go according to his good pleasure. So those are the two most predominant false views of sovereignty. Yeah, thank you. How can we reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? Well, that's been a lot of time on that, and that's a huge question. And first thing I want to do in my book is establish both, because we're we're prone we're prone to believe one and throw out the other one. And um, for for us who may be reformed, we have a high view of the sovereignty of God, high view of God, and then we almost can easily cancel out man's responsibility. And and we we can go to scriptures in Romans 9 where um, the Apostle Paul kind of foresaw that objection. You know, we're no longer moral accountable. If God is sovereign, then and if God has such thing as election and he's predestinating things, then why hold us accountable? And he answers that. And I 
work through that in a chapter called Providence, that God is sovereign, but his sovereignty works through what we know as Providence, and Providence includes three three essential teachings that safeguards man's um, uh, responsibility and his culpability. And that is God, first thing of providence, it includes God's preservation of all things. In him we live, move, and have our being. That he at all times upholds our existence. And so my heartbeat is upheld by the power of God. Uh, my atoms that are constantly in motion in my body, they're not flying in all directions. They're sustained because the active, direct, personal, willful power of God keeping me held together. All things are held together constantly and uh, consistently by the power of God. Secondly, providence includes not just preservation, but what we call concurrence, that God uses secondary uh, laws of nature, secondary means. So God's the primary means. He upholds things, but he uses instruments in his hands. Uh, like a carpenter uses a, a hammer and a tape measure to build a house. God does all things through instruments. Now he created the world with a, his spoken word. And sometimes he does a miracle and he doesn't use secondary causes. He can make an axe head, uh, a piece of iron float on water because he's sovereign. He can do that. But most of the time he uses secondary causes like uh, he used a wind to part the Red Sea. He used um, a storm to get uh, the sailors to throw Jonah into the ocean. He used a fish to get Jonah to Nineveh. Uh, he, he used all these things and they're miraculous. But God didn't violate the, uh, the free will of the fish, the free will of the sailors, the free will of Jonah. Jonah did what Jonah wanted to do, but God ordained where he was going to go. And the sailors did what they wanted to do, but he put a storm so that they would throw him overboard willfully. And so God uses secondary causes in order to accomplish his purposes, which allows uh, the laws of nature and volitional, uh, willful acts of creatures and, and humans to carry out his purpose. Then the last thing providence includes is uh, that that he does all things for a purpose. There's a eschatological uh, end to all actions, and so he's he's go, and it's called government. The idea is he's governing and guiding all things to a particular end, and so God uses our will to carry out his purposes without forcing us to do something that we would not have done otherwise. Yeah. That's so helpful, Jeff. Thank you for breaking it down like that. An important attribute for us to understand when it comes to God's sovereignty is his omnipotence. What does it mean that God is omnipotent? Well, I begin the book with a chapter on the omnipotence of God. And I broke the book up into a couple sections. And the first one is the grounds of God's sovereignty. And I talked about his omnipotence and omniscience, how he knows all things and how he is all powerful. And if God is all powerful, then he has He has to be sovereign. And we have this idea that, um, you know, there's God's power and then 
there's some other source of power that comes like, you know, the, there's power over here and then there's another independent power and, and there's a good power, there's a bad power, but in the Bible, God has all power and he has delegated power, secondary causes, which we've already talked about into the devil, angelic beings, humans, animals. He's put certain amount of power in the sun you know, all this energy and power in the world. I mean, there's power everywhere. All that uh, is, uh, is is indirectly coming from the omnipotent one. He is the all-powerful being, and there's no power independent of him. Um, we live and move, as I've already said, in him. All things derive their existence uh, and power from the omnipotent one. And so he has all power and the devil, which is encouraging because the devil, who has a lot of power, he can't do anything other than what God allows. He's on the leash of God. He's he's he is a Satan, but he's he's God Satan. Now, God's not and I, I deal with a whole chapter at the end of the book on why God's not the author of evil, the problem of sin. And we have to, you know, we have to tackle that. So God's not the author of evil, and because God's power and secondary power are not identical. That's pantheism, where you make God and the world one. So hes they're not identical, but all the power in the universe is derivative power from God. And so that that's amazing concept to think that uh, God is infinite, infinite in his power. There's no, well, we can't comprehend it. There's no cap. You know, it's not like he's a container and he's full there's it's a it's a bottomless pit and and there's no top to the cane it's infinite and it's you can't exhaust it um he does not grow weary the bible says or get tired he created the world and um, after he did so he rests on the seventh day symbolically he rests but he wasn't tired (laughs) He, he he exerts all this energy and he's lost none of it it's unbelievable but that's our god yeah, amazing. We know that God is perfect and in control. And at the same time, we see that the world that we live in is far from perfect. How is God at work during this time, Jeff? Well, this is what we need to keep in mind. And that's one of the importance of keeping the sovereignty of God on our mind. Even those of us, I wrote this book because I needed a reminder. I needed to, because the world is falling apart, it seems, at least here in America, things are just going crazy. And We're beginning to go, I don't know if I trust this person. I don't know if I trust this institution. Who's for us? Are we being protected? I mean, our government's shaky. Uh, Everything is going somewhat crazy. And we feel like things are out of control. You know, our lives can be uh, the sensation of feeling like everything's out of control. Marriages can be hard and difficult. Relationships can be out of control. And it has a feeling that there's no one driving. There's no one in in charge. It's just random, chaotic, and we're on for this crazy ride, and we don't know where we're going to end up. We're on a raft, drift at sea, and that's the feeling we have. But God gives us this uh, us something to root and ground our feelings and emotions in, and it's His absolute sovereignty that He has a purpose and He's in control, and not one um, person is thwarting His his desires, his plans. And there's a reason behind all things. And it redeems the worst scenario. 
even if I have a tragedy in my life, uh, I have a sickness or I lose my child in death and I'm broken, I'm heartbroken. And I'm like, why God, what's going on? Well, if God wasn't sovereign, it's just an accident. And if it's just an accident, then it doesn't have purpose or meaning. And if it doesn't have purpose and meaning, it means it's a waste. And then there's no hope. There's no encouragement under a system of theology that doesn't give hope to tragedy, reasons for bad things. And so, but when you get the conception that God is in control, even over what seems random and accidental and what seems chaotic and confusing and hard and difficult, and you get the conclusion that God is masterfully in control. And one day, maybe not today, one day when we get to heaven, we're going to look back and see the perfect plan of God and go, it was perfect. I wouldn't change one aspect of it. Then you can say the death of my child, though difficult and though painful, I see the beauty that God had in store in mind. I see how he used that not for the salvation of maybe my own life or the salvation of another of my siblings, or he used it here. And then he had a perfect plan for my child. Yeah, she only lived to be 10, but most people only live to be 90 and or 80 or 70. And in all eternity, what is 10 years or 90 years compared to all eternity? God used that little girl in a greater way in that particular death than he could have used her if she lived to be 190. So it, it, when you see the big picture and see that God has a plan for our, uh, for evil, for, for pain, oh, then it gives us a place to rest. And so it's important doctrine uh, personally. And I needed that. And, and I think all Christians uh, need to be rooted and grounded in this uh, important yeah, so good. theological doctrine. So good. So good. You touched on it um, briefly a few moments ago, um, God's omniscience. Uh, this is another important attribute for us to understand, isn't it? W what does this mean? And why does this in particular cause a problem for those that hold an Arminian view that God looks down the corridor of time to learn how people will respond in the future? Yeah, I mean, well, that that's the, I bring that up that there's this view that God is, you know, modalism in the sense that God is looking, looking down to see what we're going to do. And after he learns, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Doctor Strange. It's a superhero who has the ability to forecast if I do this, then this is going to happen. And he's able to look at all these billions of scenarios. Well, that's well, that's about how some people view God. He's got the the mind to go. If I change this, then here's the string of uh, consequences, and he can run through. Well, he, he definitely can do that. I mean, God has the power to do that. He's he's, but. That's not what he's doing to figure out what he's going to do. He's not responding. And if that was the case, it means God is learning. And if God is learning, then there was a point of time, then he's not omniscient. And if he's not omniscient from the beginning, then he's not God. And, and then you don't have the immobility of God. There's a change in God. So God has to be God. He has to be all-knowing from the beginning. And how does he know all that he knows? He knows all that he knows by knowing himself. So he knows what he wants to, he knows the future because he knows what he's going to do. And if he does, he doesn't. But if he does look in and learn contingencies, what would have happened? And he knows every contingency. I believe he knows that. But the reason he knows contingencies is because he knows what he, uh, what would happen if he chose to do this, <laughs> not because he learned what people would do. And so God knows the future because he controls all things and that, that and that's why i point the fact that god's omniscience just like as his omnipotence his power 
but his knowledge, his infinite knowledge also demands the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned a little bit earlier on, a big issue that people um, without a high view of the sovereignty of God tend to have is that they say it relegates humans like remote control puppets and takes away their free will. How can you answer somebody like that biblically? What would you say to that person, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. Going back to the how he uses secondary causes, and uh, he 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 got the idea that there is what we call active decrees and passive decrees in God, and so um, um, for those who are listening, some of them your your listeners may be watching and listening, but uh, pretend like I've got this candle in my hand. And it's got it's got the property of weight, so it wants to drop. Gravity wants to pull it down. Now it's going to operate on its own gravity. The second law, uh, I mean, the law of nature, um, is a secondary cause. It wants to pull this candle down to the ground. Uh, if I drop it, if then it's going to do what it's going to do. Well, this is how God does. Man's depraved; he's going to sin on his own. And the Bible says no one can do right. No one can do good unless God empowers him. He's the he's the vine, we're the branches. If we're going to have any ability to do good, we're going to have, have to have God's direct active assistance. He's going to have to pick us up. For us to do bad, God doesn't have to push us down. He doesn't have to force us to sin. All he has to do is lower his hand. He just lets us fall. We fall on our own. We sin on our own. And we're responsible for sin because we want to sin. Now, we're not responsible, per se, for our goodness. Now, there's a sense that we have this responsibility. But even when we're done with all of our good deeds, we have to say, not I, but the grace of God in me. You know, don't look at me. I throw my crown back to the feet of Christ because it was his grace that empowered me, insisted me. So for all for us to do good, God lifts us up. He empowers us. He pulls us up. For us to do bad, uh, God doesn't push us down, but he can allow us to go down to the degree that he wants us or He that he has appointed us to fall. So he's not pushing us, forcing us to sin. We sin on our own, but by the grace of God, we do what? We do good. We we believe in him. We love him. We All the fruits of the Spirit truly are fruits of the divine Holy Spirit working in us. All the works of the flesh are not attributed to the Spirit, but to our flesh. And so we're responsible. Uh, and God is the one who's praised and gets the credit for good. We get the blame for evil. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. What is providence, and is there any such thing as luck? Well, there's the Bible tells us clearly in the prop and Proverbs that even the rolling of the dice is predetermined and determined by God. And so there's no such thing as luck from God's perspective. Now, I still use the word if I shoot a long basketball shot and it goes in, I go, oh, man, I was lucky. But that's from my perspective, because I'm that's not skill. That's not uh, if I make a layup on a five foot gold, that's that's not luck that's i can do that all day long but if i make a, a, a accidental shot from a long half court man that's luck but that's from our perspective so we can use the word luck in a common vernacular way from you and my perspective 
But from God's perspective, there is no such thing as luck. He, all things are appointed, even the casting of lots and the rolling of dice is all uh, in the hands of God. Uh, and nothing, there's not one particle, Charles Spurgeon says, that is blown about by the, the wind. That is not in the absolute control of the Almighty. One of the things that you write about in the book is that God's plans are unalterable. Tell us about this and how that then plays out with our prayers. Yeah, great question. And over and over, the Bible talks about how God uh, knows the end before the beginning, and he has predetermined and predestined and decreed and elected. And when we see all these biblical language, that lets us know that God has all things uh, predetermined before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. It would lead us to go, why even pray? Why pray to a God that already knows if he's going to answer or not answer or going to do this or not do this? Why why not do this? Well, there's a story very encouraging about this woman who uh, was sick in this foreign country and a remote country. And they only had one plane a month that would drop supplies in and that the supplies have already been dropped. They didn't have uh, wasn't expecting another uh, drop of supplies for another month, but this little girl was sick and they begin to pray as if we don't get more medicine, she's going to die. And they didn't know how to get the girl out. Uh, they needed medicine and they were scared. But this one little girl uh, that, that prayed for a friend said, Lord, please send a plane of medicine uh, and don't wait for the month. She won't make it. So please send it quickly. And would you send a, her a teddy bear to go with that? And um, of course, ever as a little girl praying and some of the older people, okay, why a teddy bear? You know, I well, as soon as she's done praying, they hear a plane flying over. And then comes the box. And in the box is the medicine. And we'll, we'll, lo and behold, there's a teddy bear. Well, that's a true story, well, that, and that could be repeated over and over. You can look at Old, New Testament, Old Testament examples of this, you know, where they prayed and God intervened. Well, what we learn is the plane was already en route before the prayer. The answer was already determined before the prayer. The teddy bear was already in there, but God uses prayers as part of the means, and so if we the Bible says, if you don't have, because you don't ask. So if it's like God prayer, if God's going to do a work or revival or save our kids or, you know, answer our prayers, it's going to, because we prayed. And so that's an encouragement that God uses us to accomplish his purposes, that we get to participate in his plan. And he's decreed our prayers as much as he decrees the answer. So that's an encouragement to pray more, not less. How is God sovereign over evil without being the author of evil? Yeah, well, remember how I talked about how God can lift us up to do good, but for us to do evil, he just has to lower his hand. Well, that's the nature of God. Um, uh, he restrains evil. The Bible, Psalm 103, verse 3 says, the wrath of man shall praise me. And the remainder of that wrath, I'm going to restrain, or the Hebrew 
the image of the Hebrew language is that he's going to put a belt around that evil to keep it from happening. So there's not going to be one evil deed that God permits or allows that's not needed. Like Pharaoh, like you would think, well, he's just hindering Israel from getting out of Egypt. Pharaoh hardened his heart. That's just making it tough and harder. Uh, why did God allow Pharaoh to harden his heart? Well, Psalm 105 tells us that God purposely hardens Pharaoh's heart because it wasn't that he just wanted Israel out of Egypt. He wanted to plunder Egypt of all their riches, and he wanted to decimate them and, and humiliate their gods. So he brought about the 10 plagues that were necessary to humiliate their 10 gods and to get them where they would send out Israel and that they could plunder them from their riches. So God had a greater purpose in allowing Pharaoh to be evil. And as uh, uh, Romans 9 talks about, he raised up Pharaoh for that very purpose. And so even these evil things are working out for God's good purpose. Uh, um, but God is not forcing Pharaoh or any evil person to do evil. He's not the active agent causing them or pushing them or forcing them or even tempting them. Because God does not tempt. He cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt others to do evil. He permits, he purposefully permits them to do what they want to do for his own uh, purposes. And so he's not the author of evil. Uh, we don't confuse secondary causes with the first cause. That's Again, that's pantheism, where all power is confused into one power. No, God delegated power into secondary causes, laws of nature, the volition of creatures, and God permits them to operate according to their pre-established rules of operation. They do what they're going to do, but God is in control because he's got a great plan. And we could, we could give one illustration after another. I was just reading this morning about... It was last night, actually, I was reading about um, Joseph's brothers selling into slavery. It's like, why did God allow that to happen? Yeah. Well, he had a purpose. Yeah. And uh, they did what they wanted to do. Uh, but he used um, Reuben to keep them from killing them. And he used Judah to sell them to the, uh, uh, into slavery. And so God had, a, had it all mapped out for his eternal plan yeah yeah that's so helpful jeff so helpful uh, another thing that god is sovereign over is salvation how would you make a case for this in scripture for anyone that disagrees yeah well i i talk about this in a whole chapter um on god's sovereign over salvation and in that chapter i talk about my own experience fighting this doctrine as a child my father um taught this and i thought my dad was an amazing man godly man as a child, I thought he was theologically the smartest person I've ever knew, uh, but he's wrong on this. He was wrong on his belief that God is sovereign over salvation on doctrine of election. So in that in that chapter, I talk about my experience with Romans chapter nine as a high school student. I was reading through the Bible um, on my own and reading through the book of Romans. And, uh, you know, if, if we've been raised in a Christian home, if we read the Bible all our life, we, we read Romans and sometimes we like, we've already have an explanation of that. But I was like reading Romans for the first time. And I didn't know I was what I was about to read. 
And I found myself in an argument with my dad as I read it. It's like, this he sounds like my dad. Uh, Paul does. Then I realized I wasn't arguing with my dad. I was arguing with the Apostle Paul. And he's he's anticipating my objections because I said, it's just not fair. You know, well, I said, you know, that, that would make us into a robot. And then he has an answer for that. So, well, that's not fair. I literally was thinking this. This is not fair. Then, then the apostle says, who are you, old man? <laughs> and yeah. when, when he, when he confronted me, like, who am I to, you know, I'm, I'm the clay and he's the potter. I'm the ax handle. And he's the, uh, the guy who swings the ax. I'm like, who am I? Who, who are you, old man? And it didn't answer the objections in that at that point. I didn't have the solutions to my problems. But it came. To, I came to realize, I, even if I don't understand this, I'm fighting God. And and I realized I'm arguing with God, not my Father. And that's when I had to shut my mouth, and uh, and and quit arguing. And I think we could try to reason this out and say, hey, I'm not going to believe it until I understand it. And I think it can be understood. I think we can look at the secondary causes and, and active and passive decrees. I think there's ways to, to safeguard from God being the author of evil and we're not robots. All that can be solved. But I think that's, I think sometimes we just have to, even if we can't figure that out, saying, if the Bible teaches it, I'll submit to it. And that's what happened to me in my own experience. I didn't fully understand how these things worked out. But I realized I was fighting God and I submitted to it. And that's when the the most glorious thing happened to me personally is then it dawned on me for the first time, you know, as an 18, 19 year old kid or young man. And it dawned on me that my salvation, because I was converted at the age of 14, it dawned on me for the first time that I had nothing to do with my own salvation. And then grace became grace wait a minute, it's not 99% grace, it's grace in an, yeah. its entire grace. I, this was before the foundation of the world, and I wasn't there. I wasn't there in eternity past to raise my hand and say, put me into the elect column. Yeah, That humbled me, and then it made me praise God and rejoice and thank God for his salvation that I did not earn, I do not deserve. And it humbled me. And then I think after submitting to God in this glorious doctrine of election in Romans 9, it then I was able to work through and try to figure out how, yes, he didn't force me to believe. He made me willing, as the, the Bible says. He made he makes us willing in the day of his power. He, he changes my heart. He takes the heart of stone out, puts a heart of flesh in. And with that new nature, I cannot help but see that God is lovely and beautiful. I can't help but be attracted to that which I was once repulsed by. And with that a new nature, now I have um, the gift of faith to believe. And I, I see that now. And that's not God making me into a robot or, or making me do something I don't want to do. It's not dragging me into the kingdom of God against my will. This is me. He's, he woos me in. He he draws me in. He 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 attracts me in by giving me a new heart, a new nature by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he, I believe he has a desire to save all people. And he gives a, 
a, a general invitation, a sincere general invitation to the world. But we all, in our unconverted state, unregenerate state, we all say, hey, I don't want that. I'm too busy. I, I, I'd rather live in my sin. I don't want to submit myself to the Almighty. And we do that not because God forces us to reject him. We reject him because that's in our heart. It's in our nature to reject God. Yeah. God being in control of salvation also means that some are then predestined not to be saved, which is known as the doctrine of reprobation. Tell us about that, Jeff. Yeah, I believe that God um, is in control of all who's saved and all who's not saved. And election is the positive decree of God choosing some to himself. Reprobation is a passive decree where God... uh, passes over those who he does not choose and he uh, he passes over them and in passing over he does not hurt them harm them push them into hell he does not uh, say i'm going to put you in hell regardless if you're a sinner or not sinner it's passing over and leaving man the reprobate to themselves Um, uh, and this is the difference between god's justice and social justice. You know, social justice says what God does to one, he has to do to all. If I give a piece of candy to you, I got to give a piece of candy to everybody in the world. <laughs> or it's not fair, you know. So if I'm gracious or kind or merciful to one person, I'm forced to be merciful, kind, gracious, compassionate to every person. Well, God says, no, I, I have mercy upon whom I have mercy upon. And my mercy is not owed to anyone. So there's a distinction between justice and mercy. Justice is universal. God has to be blind. And what justice says, I'll be just to everybody equally, regardless of race, regardless of of social status, I'm going to be just. And that's why he had to send his son to die, because he cannot not be just to all people. But mercy is not required. He is not required by justice to be merciful to any person so he can be selective to who he's merciful to so mercy election is selective to whom he so pleases and chooses to be merciful to i can go to to a store here and and give a hundred dollar bill to a random person that would be gracious that random person doesn't deserve that i don't owe that to that random person but by doing that it doesn't mean i owe everybody in that store hundred dollars and that's the way god is Our election is mercy it's gracious and it's selective reprobation is god just passing over and leaving man to his natural self and it doesn't hurt him it's a reprobation is not an a a tripping someone over if they haven't done anything like i'm just going to hurt you or trip you or mess with you uh and uh, i'm going to purposefully uh, torture you not reprobation is not it's a passing it's a passive decree of uh, uh of letting man uh go his own way let yeah. letting man have what he wants yeah yeah how should god being sovereign over salvation impact how we view and do evangelism oh it, it, once you understand it 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 requires more prayer we would we would Go to the book of Ezekiel, and when God asks Ezekiel, can these dead men, these dead bones live? And um, Ezekiel says, well, you know, um, God says, well, 
prophesy to the air. And then after you prophesy to the air, prophesy to the bones. And I think he's saying, pray, you know, talk to God first, then preach to the bones. And so if we understand that God's sovereign, we would understand that uh, prayer is a vital part of the salvation process that we should pray. Um, and then two, it it doesn't leave us to gimmicks and manipulation. Uh, um, it's the proclamation of God's word that God uses to call out his elect people for himself. And if that's true, and then, then I might water, you might plant, I might water, but only God can give the increase. And that means we're not going to fall into the Charles Finney methods of trying to persuade people through manipulation, through fear, and through these uh, tactics which do not work, that do not bring forth true conversion. I can get anyone to say a prayer. Well, I can't get everybody, but I can get a lot of people, especially children, to say a prayer. I can get a lot of people to walk an aisle through lighting and through pressure and through repetitious and just um, promising them heaven and threatening them with hell. But what I can't do is change their heart. And that's a work of the Holy Spirit. And if God is sovereign, then we compel people. We um, preach passionately. God uses our passionate preaching. But we, um, it takes the pressure off of us. Uh, but it doesn't take the um, urgency. We have the urgency but not the pressure. Yeah. And it's, it's in the end, we, we, we trust God. We preach urgent, we uh, urgent preaching, urgent evangelism. So it helps us. It helps us uh, in our preaching and evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. How is Calvinism different from how hyper-Calvinism? Against hyper-Calvinism? Yep. Yeah. Well, Hyper-Calvinism is very dangerous because it it's takes some of the Armenian objections and applies it in the other direction. The Armenians say it makes us into robots. Hyper-Calvinist says, yes, that's true, which is not true. Uh, Armenians say, why pray? Hyper-Calvinist says, yeah, why pray? And, and so one's rejecting sovereignty of God based upon these. The other one's receiving them and coming to the same conclusion as the Armenian. And, and, it, and it's not holding both doctrines in tension, and, it, and it, it distorts the truth, and it leads to uh, no evangelism. It doesn't lead to urgency in preaching, uh, calling, Peter, calling sinners to repentance and belief in Christ, uh, lack of prayer, and all these things are uh, detrimental to the Christian life, and uh, they give, hyper-Calvinists give Calvinists a bad name. And I've found out in my in my experience that most people who have, who object to Calvinism are actually thinking about hyper Calvinism. That's what, yeah, yeah. And we have to say no, we're not hyper Calvinists. In fact, I once I thought about writing a book talking about the five other points of Calvinism, and I go through all the five points of Calvinism and say, 
we still believe we believe in uh, absolute sovereignty, but we believe in the responsibility of humanity. We believe in limited atonement, but we also believe in the universe, universal sufficiency of, of the atonement. You know, we could we could look at the yeah. other side of these five points, and we hold all five points strongly and robustly, and love them. But there's a balanced side to that, and and just kind of have a book geared towards keeping us from leaning into hyper Calvinism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, Jeff, I think you should do that if you ever get time, which isn't a guarantee. <laughs> Jeff, I, I've absolutely, you know, been so fascinated by our conversation. I really enjoyed your book as well. Before we let you go, do you have any closing thoughts? No, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been a wonderful conversation. I I hope there has been something that we said or something I said that would not just be a doctrine of high intellectual fun and in, is interesting and but it would be a, a doctrine that brings comfort and it would motivate us to prayer and to evangelism and for us to be able to rest in God without becoming lax or callous where we be active and faithful and yet at the same time have a sense of trusting the Lord in all things it's really a beautiful beautiful doctrine and how can people keep in contact, keep in touch with your work? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, you can uh, keep tabs of freegracepress.com. Um, uh, Freegracepress allows you, uh, there's an email that you can sign up for and it lets you know all the books that we're doing. Uh, I, I put out a book or two a year myself, so you can stay in contact with the works that I'm pr- producing through freegracepress.com. Excellent. Well, we'll grab all of those links and we'll make sure that they're in the description below wherever you're watching or listening to this podcast. Jeff, thanks again for your time. Brilliant stuff. All right. Thank you.